1: I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Podi, and
2: you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner program.
3: Good morning, Tom.
2: How you
0: doing?
2: Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: Stay tuned, cause it's on now. The Tom Sumner program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this hour, my uh, guest is an American journalist and author who has won awards for his writing about the science of hurricanes and their social and financial impacts on society. He talks about... Uh, about the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935 in his new book, um, or in his book, rather, Storm of the Century. His name is Willie Dry. He joins me now by phone. Willie, welcome to the show.
3: Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, When did the book come out? The first edition came out in 2002. It was published by uh, National Geographic. And uh, during the... 15 or so years since then, um, I came across some new information, um, sort of wanted to expand a few of the individual stories uh, in in the book, and uh, so Globe Pequot Press put out a second edition, revised and slightly expanded uh, in the the late uh, 2019.
2: Why is it important to dissect a storm from almost 100 years ago?
3: Well, there is so much that can be learned when you can go back and take a look at some of these things. Um, meteorological analysis has improved a great deal since then, so that would be one reason to do that, to find out more about the storm and how it got so incredibly powerful. Um, there were other aspects of the story that were also uh, very interesting. Um Most hurricane stories... uh are very compelling and they're very dramatic, but they're also it's also, you know, very simple plot structure. Uh, storm forms, storm comes ashore, maybe it kills people, it moves on, the survivors uh, bury the dead and move on. But this story had so many layers of complexity to it. There was the sheer strength of the storm, uh, there was the fact that it took place in the Great Depression, uh, when things were just really, really bad everywhere. And maybe the most... Uh, uh, complex factor of it was um, that there were several hundred World War One veterans who were working on a New Deal construction project in the Keys and they were left in harm's way and uh, several, a couple hundred of them 250 of them, 260 were killed by this storm and so you need to go back and analyze these things and, and, and apply new techniques of analysis and, and new information to, to really determine um, what did, in fact, happen here, and um, meteorologists have done that, and they have discovered that um, that the storm actually may have been even a little more powerful than we had first thought. It is still the most powerful hurricane to make landfall in the U.S. Now, that's making landfall. That's not uh, you know, the intensity that it achieved while it was still at sea but it is still the most powerful hurricane at landfall to strike the U.S. And they were able to determine that the winds on this storm may have probably exceeded 180 miles an hour. That's sustained winds, winds that blew for you know, a full minute or more. And the uh, wind gusts probably exceeded 200 miles an hour.
2: Did that storm happen during an expect? Uh, uh, a, 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 um, a busy hurricane season, an active uh, hurricane season like we're experiencing now?
3: No, and that's that's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the storm formed and came ashore on September 2nd, 1935. The, the, the full title of the book is, is Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935 and it made, labor, uh, made landfall on Labor Day Monday of 1935. It had been a um, very inactive season in 1935. The Labor Day storm was only the second known storm to, to form that year. And yet it became, as I said, you know, the m- most powerful hurricane on record for the U.S. Um, a comparable year would have been 1992, when Hurricane Andrew formed. Hurricane Andrew was uh, August 24th, I think it was. that It made landfall August 24th, 1992. And Andrew was the first storm of the season and we were into August, late August, which is usually a very active period. So it does not necessarily mean uh, because it is a busy hurricane season or because it is an inactive hurricane season uh, that you're not going to get very, very powerful hurricanes for me. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing to, to point out.
2: And, and you uh, call it the storm of the century, but we're in a new century. How would that storm compare to, say, Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina um, or, or some of the hurricanes that uh, we've experienced this season?
3: Well, for sheer intensity, um, it would exceed those storms. The, one of the things, though, that is um, kind of a um, one of the one of the factors here that comes into play is that in in 1935, um, the Florida Keys were very sparsely populated. It's not like it is today. Um, if your listeners uh, have been down to the Keys, uh, you know they 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 know that it's uh, basically wall to wall development from the time you hit the tip of Key Largo until you get to Key West. Um, I, around seventy five thousand people live on the Keys now. In nineteen thirty five. Um, the population of the islands between Miami and Key West was prob- was only around 1,000 people. I know that's hard to believe, but in those days, uh, the Florida Keys really were sort of the ends of the earth. Um, Key West had about 12,000 people. Key West is at the extreme southern tip of the islands, and Miami had maybe 200,000 people by, by then. But between Key West and Miami, um, it was really sparsely populated. So, a similar storm, uh, and and this is one of the things that emergency management people in, in the Keys really dread: is a storm similar to the Labor Day Hurricane making landfall there um, today because of the of, because of the much larger population. You mentioned. Um, <clears throat> You mentioned Hurricane Sandy, and Hurricane Sandy um, got, I mean, it deserved a lot of publicity. It did get a lot of publicity. Uh, it was a very, very bad storm. I saw the effects of uh, Hurricane Sandy on the Jersey Shore uh, a couple months after it made landfall, and it really did it really did strike a, a punishing blow up there. Um, part of the reason that Sandy was so devastating was the fact that it did hit a major population center. And so that certainly made the, the, the impact of Sandy very, very evident. Um, the labor day hurricane of 1935, there was very little for it to, to destroy in the keys. The keys were well off the beaten path. and And so it didn't, it, it got some attention mostly because of the presence of the veterans. The veterans all over the United States. They represented 30, I think it was 30 of the 48 states at that time, and so that turned into a a national, uh, a national tragedy. Had the veterans not been there, uh, the 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 main thing that it would would have been significant about the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935 would simply have been its intensity, because it did strike. That would have been sparsely populated and there just really wasn't much there for it to destroy. But the presence of the veterans is what uh, really uh, gave it a much bigger impact uh, than it otherwise would have had.
2: You know we're used to seeing all kinds of uh, weather models on, on television during hurricane season showing storms forming out at sea and um, and and literally Counting down till the storm reaches uh, a landmass. Uh, what kind of warning would they have had in 1935?
3: It would have not been anything resembling um, what we have today. Uh, in, in 1935, of course, there were no weather satellites at that time. The the, the development of um, weather satellites that can that allow us to pinpoint uh the exact uh, location of a hurricane and, and and allow us to um you know to follow its path it is just a remarkable development uh in 1935 they did not have that uh they being the US weather bureau which uh later became the national weather service and and developed the national hurricane center US weather bureau in 1935 had to depend on uh, ships at sea for information about the presence of, of storms, uh, the ships would radio their information about the storm, their barometric pressure readings, and wind speeds, and so forth. And um, the weather bureau would would uh, use those, use that information, and also use information from observers. Uh, stationed at various coastal uh, uh, spots on the coast, um, you know, all along the Atlantic coast, if they would they would send in regular uh, barometric pressure readings and winds and rainfall and so forth. And the, um, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, no. finish what you're saying.
3: Uh, well, the um, <clears throat> the uh, weather bureau would use that information to make uh, their forecasts. And they did the best they could with the information they had, but uh, basically it was uh, it was an educated guess, and so sometimes they were off. And in uh, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, they were in fact uh, off in their in their forecast track for it. Um.
2: I, I, for some reason, I just had this picture in my head of Donald Trump drawing uh, things with a <laughs> magic marker, <laughs> um, and 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 I I really shouldn't, but uh, but I couldn't help getting that that image in my head. Um, you know, because of the pandemic that we're living through. Uh, We're hearing the phrase uh, with regard to stay-at-home orders and recommendations, shelter-at-home. That is a a phrase that was really born out of hurricanes, wasn't it?
3: Yes. um, In in 1935, um, you did not have the the, the mass evacuation. Well, you didn't have the coastal development that we have today. Um, the coastal development that we have today really didn't get started, I guess, until the 70s or 80s, maybe. Um, before then, people—I mean, people lived on the coast, of course—but you didn't see these big coastal uh, developments like you see in some places, like on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and the Keys. Um, In 1935, uh, most people who lived in the Florida Keys, uh, and again recalling that there weren't very many people there at that time, uh, did not leave uh, their homes for a hurricane. They built um, very sturdy hurricane shelters that they could go to. Uh, One of the families that I focused on in Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, uh, was the Russell family of Alamorada, Florida. Alamarada is, I think it's 80 miles or so uh, from Miami. And uh, the Russell family were pioneers there. They're, they're, they had lived there. Their family had lived there since the mid-19th century. Um, they uh, farmed, they fished. By farming, I mean truck farming. I don't mean what you think of you know, modern agricultural farming. Um, they, they sold produce. Uh, the uh, patriarch of the family, John Russell, was, was postmaster here. They. Uh and, and shipped uh, up to uh, Peninsula
2: on, on the train. W- Willie, I hate to interrupt, but I have a break coming up. Um, sure, can sure. you stick around so we can dig down on this some more? Of course. Of okay, course. Um, and, and one other thing I'm, I'm going to request during the break. Uh, can we disconnect and you call me back? There's a, a strange noise that's happening. I'm hoping we get a better connection. Sure, sure. I'll,
3: I'll call you right back when we go to break.
2: Okay, and with that, uh, we are going to take a short break, but we'll be back with Willie Dry talking about the storm of the century, the Labor Day hurricane of
1: 1935. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. tom sumner program celebrating the rich talent pool from flint genesee county and throughout michigan
1: the 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by James Sean. Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees. What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers. In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Silent Night 7 o'clock news by Simon and Garfunkel. And who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry McGuire's Immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring Vanilla Fudge, Blue Chair, Frigid Pink will be great The Electric Prunes Jeff's Airplane Lothar in Hand People to name but a few plus as part of this special limited offer you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic Cream Blind Faith Ginger Baker's Air Force and many many others yes this is a collector's dream cold in protest plus two fabulous 60's albums all for only $3.95 if you were to purchase these selections separately they'd cost you hundreds of dollars and many cannot be found anywhere at any price well it's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send 395 and check your money order, plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's 395 and check your money to Apple House Box to t- Time program.com The Time Sumner Program.com.
0: This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, author Willie Dry about his, uh, about. well, we're really just talking about hurricanes in general, but he has a book uh, that's kind of a go-to on the uh, Labor Day hurricane of 1935 called Storm of the Century. Um, Willie, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around.
3: Oh, Glad to do it, Tom. Uh, glad to do
2: it. Um, just before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about this uh, idea of uh, sheltering in place, and you said that there were some um, some places, some go-to places that were uh, fortified and and were relatively safe uh, as as places to. Um, uh, shelter from the storm and and i wonder do those places still exist
3: no um i was i was talking about a a particular family that was kind of a central figure in this story the the russell family of alamorada florida and they had a citrus packing house uh that they used to uh to package uh key limes for shipment uh, up to Miami. And uh, they built this to double as a storm shelter. They built it with uh, very heavy timbers. Um, it was held together with uh, big, long, sturdy railroad bol- bolts. And uh, it was screwed to the coral. You know, the, the, the keys are, are, are comp- composed of, of coral, uh, which is basically, a, you know, it's, it's like solid rock almost. And they had their um, <clears throat> the shelter was screwed to the coral island to so that it would stand up to heavy winds and storm surge. Um, so this very sturdy and this this shelter had withstood many powerful hurricanes and you know since the years that they that they built it, and it was destroyed um, by this storm. Oh really? Um, yeah, it was. Uh, the, the family was um, was thrown into the worst part of this storm as the as the worst part of it came ashore and i became uh pretty good friends with uh, bernard russell who was 16 years old at the time of the hurricane and bernard uh described to me in some detail the the terrible moments that happened um when when his family's storm shelter uh was destroyed he um they knew that the um that the storm surge was going to flood their island, and, and the water was probably going to get too high for them to survive in the in the storm shelter. So, so they were going to try to make it to the other side of a railroad embankment, which would provide some protection uh, from the winds and floods. And Bernard said that he was trying to hold on to his sister and his infant nephew when they went out of the um, when they went out of the storm shelter as it began to come apart, and then the wind just carried uh, his sister and his uh, nephew away from him. One minute they were there, and the next minute they were gone. Uh, They were later found uh, on an island, one of those those many little islands in in Florida Bay between the Keys and the tip of the peninsula, and they were later found many, many miles uh, from Isla Morata. Um, Of course, they did not survive but the storm had carried them for many miles across, uh, across Florida Bay. Um, after the storm, uh, the uh, American Red Cross built some uh, uh, what they considered to be hurricane-proof houses for the survivors of the storm who, who came back to Alamorada to, to resettle and uh, when I when I interviewed Bernard, he was living in one of those houses. It was a, it was made of steel reinforced concrete. Uh, Bernard said it was like living in a little bank vault. The <laughs> the the the, 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 um, the walls were about a foot thick, and uh, it was made of solid concrete. And the the roof was held on uh, by um, well, I forget the construction term, but it was anchored. To the, uh, to the walls, you know, by, by the steel-reinforced concrete. And that, that structure has survived, um, or those structures, there, there were 20 or 25 of them, I think, that were built. They are all still there. Um, and they have survived uh, Hurricane Donna and all of the other, uh there have been some pretty bad storms that have struck the keys since 1935 and 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 uh, the, all of the structures are still there so it is possible you know to build um hurricane proof uh houses i guess but you've got to go to some great extent to do it even uh you know it's going to be hard to to build a a wooden structure that's going to stand up against uh 200 mile an hour winds
2: which is the more destructive uh, force the the um, the winds or or the storm surge
3: well that's an interesting question Um, a storm surge can can destroy property and kill people even if it's not propelled by 200 mile an hour winds Storm surge, you know, can drown people. Uh, a storm surge can pick up debris and and uh, other, uh, you know, debris from other buildings and so forth that has been uh, destroyed, and it can that can act as almost as a battering ram um, against structures, and, and a lot of buildings get taken down that way. Um, 200 mile an hour wounds though, there's there's really not a whole lot that's going to stand up. Um, against that, I mean, building codes in, um, storm prone areas, such as the keys, uh, such as Southern Florida now require, um, minimum wind loads. And I think, I'm, I'm not sure what the latest is and I don't want to speculate, but, uh, I'm sure that the, the wind load requirements are in excess of a hundred miles an hour, um, As far as uh, which is more destructive, that's kind of hard for me to say. Um, I think the storm surge, though, really um, people maybe don't realize how deadly uh, a storm surge can be. But if you're suddenly inundated with uh, 12 or 15 feet of water, you're going to have problems surviving if you're not prepared for it.
2: Yeah, I remember a comedian talking about uh he said he had a friend who was kind of macho and he said he was uh going to prove how tough he was uh by standing up to the winds of a hurricane tying himself <laughs> to a tree and he said uh, yeah he said it's not the winds that get you it's that Volkswagen flying
1: through
3: the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yes, that that, that can be very deadly and, and that that that's a good point. Um when you get into 120, 130, 140-mile-an-hour winds, um, ordi- ordinary everyday objects uh, can can become deadly. And um, going back to the veterans who were exposed to this storm in the 1935 Labor Day hurricane, um, a lot of them were killed by flying debris. I mean, coconuts, you know, their, their coconut palms are are in the Keys. Uh, a coconut traveling at 120 miles an hour is going to kill you if it hits you in the head. Um, there were others who, uh, who were skewered by lumber. Uh, part of the problem that, that made it so dangerous for the veterans was that uh, they lived in beachfront work camps that were very hastily constructed. Um, The plan had been to to get the veterans off of the islands by calling a train if if a hurricane threatened The plan was to get them aboard a train and and get them out of there Um, The problem was that the administrators really didn't understand the danger that they were in and they miscalculated and ordered the train too late but the veterans were uh, Waiting on the train as the worst of the hurricane winds arrived, and buildings started coming apart, and lumber started flying, and a lot of them were just impaled by um, by uh, shreds of lumber. So, um, <clears throat> yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you, if you are in, uh, if you do are unfortunate enough to be caught in a hurricane with winds of 120-130 miles an hour, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's flying through the air uh, that that can kill you. It's, it's not unusual. Maybe you've seen these uh, uh, photos made after hurricanes where a uh, you know piece of straw or something has been impaled in a tree trunk. I mean, you, you see freaky things like that all the time in, in the wake of a hurricane.
2: Well, and whole boats, you know, two mm-hmm. or three miles inland.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it pretty well rearranges uh everything around it.
2: Now the the book is kind of a tribute to those veterans of nineteen thirty five who lost their lives. Um and yet you talk about the uh the responsibility for their deaths being an old fashioned mm-hmm. blame a Um <laughs> I think of that as a fairly contemporary thing, but even back then.
3: Oh yeah, there was um there was um this became a very political um event and before I before I discuss this I kinda of feel obligated to say that just speaking for myself, I think Franklin Roosevelt was a pretty good president. Um that doesn't mean, though, that the people under him didn't do some pretty serious scrambling to um, to obscure some of the events uh, that happened. And, uh, and you mean F- they, FDR
2: uh, had a good job, Brownie moment?
3: Um, I'm sorry, FDR had a good job. What moment?
2: Good job, Brownie
3: oh, oh no, no, no no i I don't think it was quite like uh i don't think it was quite like mr bush and, and his his friend who was the uh femA director at the time i think um i think i think f d r just basically tried to stay out of it uh, I, I didn't find any evidence that uh that he that he actively um ordered a cover up or anything like that. Um, but there was a political aspect to this because it happened in, in September 1935. And uh, he was about to uh, be starting his campaign for re-election, of course, in 1936. And you, um, you look back at the results of the 1936 election in which he carried, I think he carried 46 of the 48 states. Um, got uh, all but a few of the electoral votes. I can't remember offhand. But the landscape didn't look quite that way in um, late 1935. Uh, There was a magazine, very, very popular magazine at that time, called Literary Digest. And Literary Digest had been doing a presidential preference poll uh, since 1916. And they had never been wrong. They had been picking the presidential winner for 20 years. And in uh, early 1935, I think it was, they had released the results of one of their polls. And their poll predicted that Roosevelt was going to lose and he was going to lose badly. I mean, it was not even going to be close. Now, there were other polls. I think that the Gallup poll was in its infancy at the time. And uh, I think there were a couple of other polls that that showed things uh, a little more favorable for Roosevelt. But the Literary Digest poll was well established, it was well respected, and it was predicting that uh, President Roosevelt was going to lose. So... um, FDR's uh, campaign uh, strategists and supporters and so forth undoubtedly were aware of this poll and and it undoubtedly had them very worried and one of the um, one of the events that that helped sweep uh, President Roosevelt into office was um the uh so-called bonus march of uh 1932 uh, when some World War I veterans had marched on Washington trying to persuade uh, President Hoover, who, of course, was a Republican, to approve early payment of the bonus that they had been promised for their wartime service. Uh, the bonus was not due to be paid until 1945, but the, the veterans were so desperate for cash that they were trying to talk Congress and President Hoover into approving early payment of the bonus because they did need the money very badly and uh, thousands of them gathered in washington dc in the summer of 1932 to uh try to you know to lobby um for this payment and official washington sort of got tired of them i mean they were bedraggled they were they lived in camps. They had got camped on uh, some, some government property, and they they built a, a kind of a, a, a tent city uh, near the Anacostia River in in the District of Columbia. And uh, in July 1932, uh, Hoover ordered General Douglas MacArthur, who was the Army Chief of Staff at the time, to uh, to um, evict the veterans from government property hoover gave very specific orders to macarthur he said to evict them only from government property and to use uh you know courtesy and 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 consideration and all of that stuff but macarthur decided that uh things were on the verge of an armed revolution and so he brought in tanks and troops and tear gas and, and had his men uh, fix bayonets and, and they chased uh, these uh, these uh, old middle-aged veterans, the World War One heroes, um, chased them out of uh, the District of Columbia. And uh, President Ro- or then candidate Roosevelt. Um, Saw the news stories about this the following day. I mean, it was it was it was gigantic headlines in newspapers all across the country. Uh, it was it was a huge uh, news event, and it showed uh, troops chasing these old guys out of Washington and burning their tent city and and, and all of that. And um, Roosevelt saw these headlines, and, and uh, he he turned to a colleague and said, "This is going to elect me." and, and he was right. Uh, it, it, it uh, I don't know if Hoover had much chance of winning anyway, but any chance he did have of winning went out the window when, um, when Hoover ordered MacArthur to, uh, remove the troops from government property and MacArthur, this may have been the first time, but it was not the last time that he would, uh, exceed a presidential order. And, um, and uh and, and go to greater lengths than than he was uh, authorized to do so anyway um roosevelt in 1936 1935 1936 was looking back at this event that had uh, helped put him in the white house and it helped uh, seal hoover's doom and so if um if the country was going to get outraged by the way the veterans had been treated in washington under Hoover what might they say if um if the Roosevelt administration could be blamed for uh leaving them in the path of uh, of this powerful hurricane and uh so they were wow. that plus the um the poll by literary digest had been had been very worried and just as a you know to kind of close the book on the literary digest thing what what had happened there was that uh Literary Digest had 10 million survivors, and and they conducted their poll by sending out, um, they mailed out uh, poll ballots or whatever you wanted to call them to their subscribers. They mailed out 10 million of these things to their subscribers, but only uh, only about 25 percent of uh, the readers returned. Uh, their poll forms. So the survey sample was deeply flawed. They only got a sample of 25% of their readers. And uh, so the survey sample was flawed, and, and that threw the results off. And it was a huge embarrassment for Literary Digest. Uh, but it was the first time that they had proven um, to be wrong.
2: Well, hurricane forecasting has gotten a lot better, but I'm not sure that political forecasting has.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that's going to be with us uh, for probably forever. I um,
2: I, I went. Um, I, I had a friend who was uh, living in Texas, and there was a hurricane that was uh, headed for uh, for shore, and I was going to call them. As part of the show and say, you know, what's going on? What's happening? What are you seeing? You know, that kind of, you know, almost like live coverage. And, um, and so, uh, the day came when I, you know, the, the show was running and I, and I contacted him and I said, um, well, how are things going? And he said, Well, I don't really know. I'm in Nashville. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and she went on to say, uh, You know, when the sheriff came on TV and said, uh, You know, shelter in place, I said, I don't, her hunker down was the phrase he used. She said, I don't know yeah. anything about hunkering down. We bugged yeah. out. And, yeah,
0: yeah, and, yeah.
2: and the question is it's, it's very difficult when officials um, ask, residents to evacuate an area Mm -hmm. Um, the evacuation becomes very cumbersome as you said the these areas are um, are are much more populated than they would have been back in 1935 so there's a lot more people to move and and I've known cases where people in Florida for example they're anticipating the storm to come ashore in one area so they drive across the state and then it hits that Mm -hmm. side um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so people are zigzagging back and forth across that peninsula. But is is there is there a typical area that's that's at higher risk? You, you know, we talk about Hurricane Sandy, which, you know, has been referred to as Frankenstorm. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. But that was unusual for it to hit that far north.
3: It was. Uh, Sandy, Sandy was a, what is sometimes referred to as a black swan storm. Um, San, Sandy was a bit of a freak, and, and, and three of those kinds of storms come to mind. Um, the first one was a hurricane that hit Long Island in, in 1938. Um, <clears throat> it was a powerful storm. It, um, usually when storms get that far north, uh, they have lost much of their intensity, but this 1938 hurricane got picked up by a, a, a front, a frontal system of some sort, I think, and it, it sort of outran its um, deterioration. Uh, it moved so quickly up the East Coast. I think it was it moved at 35 or 50 miles an hour, something like that, which is just unheard of for hurricanes to move at that speed. Um, But it it caught Long Island pretty much completely by surprise uh, in in the uh, late summer, early fall of 1938, and did quite a bit of damage, killed six or 700 people, I think. Um, But it was a freak storm. Uh, Another similar storm was Hurricane Hazel in, in 1954, which came ashore in North Carolina. And uh, Hazel got picked up by a similar system uh, uh, that, uh, that it, you know, it, uh, boosted the speed of the 1938 hurricane. And so it is still the most powerful hurricane to strike North Carolina. And just as a very quick sidebar, that was my... I was five years older in Hazel, and so that was my first experience with a hurricane.
2: Hey, Willie, Uh, I hate to interrupt, but I have another break coming up. Can you stick around, and we'll do another short uh, segment? Uh, My guest is uh, Willie Dry. He is the author of Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM in Flint, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well.
1: (laughs)
0: alcohol may cause pregnancy and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked so what are you waiting for stop hiding and start living with tequila. tequila
3: those hands no matter whose they are can spread the germs of many common diseases that's why i want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean to wash them regularly and always before meals with life boy which not only removes dirt but helps to remove germs teach the children this habit form it yourself
1: A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. In the interest of goodwill, the Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy?
3: Well, let me ask you could you be happy if your are, This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
2: And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is uh, the author of the uh, book, The Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935. He uh, is an award-winning American journalist and author who writes about the uh, science of hurricanes and their social and financial impacts on society. Willie Dry is his name. Willie, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around
3: sure thanks for having me tom i was listening to your promo for tequila there while we were on the break and it- <laughs> Reminded me of an incident that took place in Chapel Hill when I was a student on October the 12th, 1975, and I haven't touched the stuff since then. Although <laughs> I do drink scotch, but I have sworn <laughs> off tequila. I, I
2: I know a lot of people who have sworn off tequila, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if their stories compare, but uh, I suspect that they, they'd they be fun to talk about over some scotch, maybe sometime.
1: Yes,
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, During the last segment, or toward the end of the last segment, we started talking about sheltering in place versus evacuation. Is it it wise for people to um, decide to to stay home and and have hurricane parties, or should people uh, really heed the advice of uh, officials who recommend leaving the area prior to a hurricane?
3: Well, uh, this is my opinion, um, for whatever it's worth. My wife and I have, have been through, gosh, a couple dozen hurricanes, I guess. Now, we have we've lived on the coast uh, since 1992, first in Florida, and now we live in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, our decision, our way of coping with hurricanes that has sort of evolved over the years, one of the first things you have to do is just kind of acknowledge the fact that you are probably, if you live in, you know, on the, on the Gulf Coast or U.S. Atlantic Coast, especially in the southeast, you're probably going to be dealing with a hurricane at some point. And you need to just kind of accept that fact and, and make your plans well in advance. Know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and, and when you're going to do it. Um, if you're gonna uh, shelter in place, first thing is, is to uh, to to determine if the structure where you're gonna stay can stand up to um, you know can stand up to a, to the full force of a hurricane. Uh, can you stay in your home and will it withstand it, or are you gonna have to go to a public shelter of some sort? If you're going to have to go to a public shelter of some sort, then you need to find out where it is, where you will go, what you need to bring. If you're going to stay at home, you need to prepare yourself for that. Um, that's going to involve, you know, food supply, um, canned foods, things like that, water supply, uh, maybe, uh, maybe a generator uh, for the inevitable losing your power. Uh, and you've got to do all this this uh, in advance when you can kind of do it uh, uh, with a cool head. Because if you wait until the storm is out there, um, it, it's it, things are going to get crazy. Um, you're not going to have time to do everything that you need to do. Um, if you decide that you're going to leave, then you need to decide where are you going to go. Are you going to go... Um, are you going to go stay with a relative inland? Or are you going to go to a hotel inland? Um, what, are you, what are you going to do and how are you going to get there? And you've also uh, got to decide, uh, you know, at what point um, do I make the decision whether I'm going to stay or whether I'm going to go. Uh, Jane, my wife and I um, sort of base it on what's the forecast for the, the intensity of the storm at landfall. We, We've been through a lot of hurricanes. We don't need to see the excitement of a category three or category four storm. So if it looks like it's gonna be a major landfall, a major hurricane at landfall, you know, category three or four, then we're probably gonna go, you know, we're probably gonna get out of town. Um, Category one, category two, tropical storm, we will probably ride that out. We've done that many times. But the main thing is, is just make your plan in advance know what you're going to do, and have the discipline to, to make it and execute it, and don't wait until the last minute um, to do it.
2: <laughs> a friend of mine was uh, a newbie in Florida. He moved to uh, Orlando. This is many years ago. And uh, a short, he'd been living there a very short time, and uh, he started hearing about a, a hurricane that was forecast. And he uh, was so frightened by the concept of it, he boarded up all his windows and tied himself to a post inside the house, and <laughs> he said, you know, by time the, the, the storm that had hit ground, by time it came across to Orlando, he said, it rained a little bit. <laughs> yeah yeah and he was so embarrassed about that because he was such a newbie he had to go around take all the wood off the windows and all that stuff
3: well but but and but but also good for him for making a plan i mean um you know orlando's typically is, is far enough inland that it doesn't get the force of a hurricane that it, it's not likely you get the full force of like the keys would of, of say the way they did hurricane irma or something like that um that's one thing that, that that's it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that that's also kind of a factor that comes into play um is is uh i, I don't know if I, you'd call it the shame factor but Um, do you want to be the first guy in your neighborhood to to board up your windows? I mean, and and what happens if if nothing, you know, if nothing comes? I mean, you're, you're actually worried about looking like an idiot. And, (laughs) um, and and the thing is though, that that's, you really kind of need to to dispense with that, especially if you live in in South Florida. Um, Our, my wife's, And our our first experience with a hurricane in Florida was Hurricane Andrew. And we were well away from the worst of that. We were um, 100 miles or so up the coast from where the worst of it went in. But we did not know that the day before Andrew arrived. And that was as close to panic as I ever want to be. Um, I mean, we were totally freaked out. We had no idea what to do. We had been in Florida for less than a year. And... um, (coughs) we were trying like crazy like you know desperately to figure out what do we need to do where are we going to go and by that time by this Sunday afternoon I mean there were some really ominous forecasts for Andrew people knew that it was going to be very very bad and um, so we we had never you know seen the elephant so to speak and and we were we were quite freaked out about it and that's part of the reason that was a major factor in in actually me writing the book about the labor day hurricane was i decided that um if i was going to live in a part of the world where storms like andrew could come the only way i could stay sane was to learn everything i possibly could about hurricanes and so i just went into a you know, uh, a, a hurricane cram course, meteorolo- <laughs> meteorological cram course, until I came across this 1935 hurricane that uh, I was astonished to learn that it was even more powerful than um, than Hurricane Andrew. And the more I dug into it, the more I was amazed by the I, I mentioned earlier the complexity of the story and and and, and the book. Um, the book grew out of that. Um, can I can I mention one more thing real quickly here? I see sure. we're getting close to the end of our time. Yeah, we are. We uh, one one incident that that uh, I discovered in in the research for the Labor Day Hurricane, um, the 1935 hurricane was the first time that an airplane was used to try to find a hurricane, and um, the the pilot was a guy named Leonard Povey who was an American. He had been a daredevil pilot, and a stunt pilot, before 1935. And he had been hired by uh, uh, Fulgencia Batista, the Cuban strong man, who was kind of the power behind the throne in Cuba in those days. He had been hired by Batista to uh, train pilots for Batista's Army Air Force. And he was in Havana. Uh, on September 2nd, 1935, and there was disagreement between the U.S. Weather Bureau and the Cuban meteorologists about where the center of the storm was. So somebody came up with the idea to send, Let, let's send this crazy American out there and, uh, and see if he can uh, you know, find this storm. So on the afternoon of um, <clears throat> September 2nd, Povey climbs into this little open cockpit biplane fighter. I mean, uh, you know, just a little a little biplane fighter with a 350 horsepower engine, I think it was, and goes off to look for you know, the most powerful hurricane on record at that time. <laughs> I would love to have been. I'd love to have been in the in the room where that decision was made. I, I, I Povey was crazy enough. He he might have volunteered. <laughs> I mean, he, may, he may very well have volunteered, but he, they also may have come to him, and he said to them something like, "You want me to do what?" And but he did—he did climb into this little biplane fighter, <laughs> open, open cockpit, and, and fly out over uh, Florida Bay um, uh, looking for the hurricane, and he found it forty or fifty miles north. Of where the U.S. Weather Bureau was plotting it, Uh, the Weather Bureau had had been saying that it was gonna, that it was moving westward just off the coast of Cuba, and I'm talking about the center of the storm. You know, the entire hurricane was much bigger.
2: Willie, we got to. We unfortunately we've got to end it there. But I always give guests an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
3: I have a blog. Called dry goods, D R Y E, dry goods, um, and uh, I my my Facebook page um, is public, so anybody can follow me on Facebook. Uh, the the book Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And they might also check out my third book, which is For Sale, American Hi, I'm paradise. Alexander Zajic. Don't touch Thanks,
2: Willie. Dive. We're out of time. You're listening to Tom. Okay, Sunday.
3: thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Thank you.